Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus County. Today, my guest is Jason Hubbard. He is the CEO and founder of Demand Magic and also an adjunct professor at the University of Tennessee specializing in, guess what, business ethics. So we're going to dive into both outbound and what the hell is going on with that. And we're also going to look at the tension between ethical business and maximizing profit. Is there really a tension? Is it something that's fabricated by greedy, lazy leaders? I think you know where we're headed with this. Uh, Jason, (laughs) welcome. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving us 60 to 90 seconds on your history? Sure. Uh, So I actually literally grew up in startups. Both my parents are serial entrepreneurs. uh, So grew up within those businesses, was you know, being uh, you know, nurtured to ultimately take those over. Unfortunately, by the time that rolled around, we were on the verge of bankruptcy. So after a couple of years of working to try and help dig us out of that, there wasn't much left to manage. And that's how I wound up in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. I came here for a doctorate in philosophy, thus the uh, teaching uh, on business ethics. Dissertation advisor took a job at another college as I was starting my dissertation. So I jumped ship and got an MBA and wound up right back in the business world. And so I have done a you know series of uh, everything from starting my own companies to being you know first employee launching brands and products all the way up through Series D venture backed ventures and roles anywhere from you know CEO to you know VP of marketing, demand gen, growth, partnerships, you know, sort of you name it on that side of the equation. Excellent. Okay, so um, let's kick off with some big hairy ass questions first off. Then, (laughs) What do you see coming down the pipe? And how does the demand gen function need to adapt? So coming down the pipe fast and hard, whether people are aware of it or not, and uh, you know, it's pretty clear, a lot of people are starting to catch on this pretty quickly, is that outbound and demand gen, as far as being able to go put you know, cheap talent uh, that's just starting their careers in seats and equipping them with some tech and saying, okay, for every rep I add, it's going to add X amount of pipeline and X amount of revenue. And so it's primarily a hiring and HR you know, problem that we've got to solve for, and that's the quickest and easiest way to go put funding to work. Now, all of that is blowing up in people's faces right now, uh, and it isn't going to change, and you need to look no further than the layoffs going on in the tech industry right now and seeing which departments, which roles are being primarily decimated within that. And that's, you know, the sales teams, and in particular, the outbound SDR, BDR functions that are being absolutely destroyed in this. And so, that's a lot of what I'm doing with, you know, Demand Magic. It's a lot of what I'm doing with, you know, one of my uh, client companies, uh, Rev Genius, where I'm operating as, you know, fac- fractional uh, CMO for it. So, so much of what we're talking about and dealing with is the fallout from this mess that we've all put put ourselves in. Well, the the podcast has been a vociferous opponent of um, this short term thinking and the lazy, greedy selfishness. I mean, the vile behavior of CEOs weeping on LinkedIn saying, you know, it's like having to let go of my family as they fuck off to the Maldives with something <laughs> in their pocket. It's obscene. And we, we know that this model is broken. But the challenge that I think a lot of organizations face is that even through the 2008 recession, there was so much money going into tech that they didn't have to make a profit. 
over the last uh, couple of months, we're seeing Sequoia, Y Combinator, Tiger, and various others come out and say, now you have to make a profit. If you're not collecting cash, you're dead to us. And you've got entire layers of leadership and management and sales that have never had to make a profit. Everything that they did that made them a hero in the revenue at any cost model is now going to make them a villain. You can't discount because that's profit. You can't put people under pressure because you're probably going to end up stalling the deals or killing them or driving them to your competitors. And when you're spending $92 on acquiring the customer and only $1 on converting them, you do have to ask the question, is the demand gen piece really just lipstick on a pig? Because (laughs) my question is, it's all well and good knocking out 10,000 emails, but how much actual revenue comes in that you get to keep as profit? And that, I think, is another major problem. So just pick all that apart and tell me. Yeah. No, I don't think you're wrong, unfortunately. And, you know, marketers demand gen people that function in a way that is not in service of sales and revenue and overall profitability will always and forever be an utter mystery to me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't exist and it's not, you know, arguably probably the majority of how, you know, organizations and, you know, those those people in those roles function. But for me, and I think a lot of it had to do with growing up within, you know, bootstrap companies and businesses, both at the, you know, family level, as well as what I've done personally and a lot of the startups that I've worked for. I never had the luxury of being able to function in any other capacity. And yeah, I mean, it never ceases to amaze me when I wind up in organizations or, you know, interacting with people that don't have that mindset of, you know, what is the ROI on every one of these initiatives that we're doing? How much of this is is contributing to, you know, pipeline and revenue? What is scalable? What is not? All of those things. That isn't the way that, you know, these organizations and these people in these roles function. I will never get or understand. Well, I've just had a bit of an epiphany, so let me just unpack it. What I think I'm hearing you tell me is that because of the way the business model is structured, you're effectively driving short-term thinking, short-term behavior, which is then going to be mirrored in short-term measurement, which then drives the wrong behaviors, which drives unintended consequences. And the overemphasis, um, my, my pal, Gary Mitchell always talks about putting the financial cart before the outcome horse. And the problem is that I think finance has taken such a powerful position because so many of these organizations have been using investment capital as oxygen, not as fuel, because without it, they just couldn't survive. So it's oxygen. It's it's not just food. And as a result of that, the entire business model has been geared away from creating stakeholder value. The customer is forgotten, the employees are forgotten, and it really boils down to a lazy, it's not, it's lazy thinking and the wrong starting point, because the the outcome appears to be, that they obsess about, appears to be the valuation figure. It absolutely is. And the one of the saddest things that I've seen, and I've seen this at multiple organizations I've worked at, is how badly it it comes as just an outcome of taking on the money. 
you know, I've worked at multiple organizations where, you know, they began as a company that was focused on those stakeholders, began as a company that, you know, was aiming, you know, may have not necessarily gotten there, but aiming to operate as profitably as possible. And so they may have been, you know, still coming up short and they could afford to because they had taken on a series A or something like that. Um, but they weren't looking at the model and saying, okay, we've got to raise series B in six months, series C in you know, 12 and whatever. And so that's our primary focus. They were, they were trying to grow in an actual profitable, manageable way. And a lot of this came as a, you know, as an offshoot of what happened when, as we were going through COVID. We had all of this liquidity in the marketplace and we had so few good places to put that money because everything was so ridiculously overvalued. And so, you know, I was at an organization at the time where, you know, people were beating down the door, trying to throw money at us. And finally, after saying no that many times, we finally said, okay, we're, we'll take it on, but it's going to be on our terms. And it's, you know, it's going to be at a minimum valuation of X, not getting a you know, board seat, blah, blah, blah. We still had people taking us up on it. And so, you know, over like a 12 month period, we wound up raising like a half a billion dollars, which is just fucking absurd. Without anyone on the board, all rounds were not part of that conversation, but okay. half of it, half of it was. And yeah, I mean, as you saw that money starting to roll in, especially the last round, that Series D that we raised, those decisions started shifting. That culture started shifting, and we started seeing you know all kinds of things that were counter to. And I mean, like it got to the point where the company no longer was recognizable from the company I had joined eighteen months earlier, and. Yeah, well, it, it's really sad to see those things happen, even whenever you start off in the right mindset. So what would your advice be to founders who are seriously, you know, who, who've been bought into the hype around funding? What advice would you give them? <laughs> God, there's a lot of advice. One, seriously question whether you need it and what you're going to do with it. I think way too often, the questions of what you're going to do with that money happen after the money's already come in, which is where you wind up with a lot of this lazy short-term thinking, which is, oh, hey, we just raised hundreds of millions of dollars. We got no fucking clue where we're going to go and plug that into to go put that to work. But my spreadsheet here tells me that for every salesperson I put in a seat, I'm going to generate X amount of pipeline, which is going to convert at this ratio and it's going to contribute to this amount of revenue. And so that seems like a really good place to go put a lot of that money to work. So I think at a very basic level, ask whether you need it, what the hell you're going to do with it before you go take it on. Well, and this is where I think uh, so many organizations suffer from the manic how and the lazy why. And they're so eager to just do something. And they go for the what other people do. They go for the same marketplaces that are operating in a crowded space. They waste a huge amount of time going after vanity projects. They spend money on technology, but they're turning over their people so fast that the knowledge leaves with their people. So they end up replicating functionality and end up buying stuff that they don't use. So they end up with this really complex technology spaghetti that they've spent <laughs> all this money on. But what I've seen, because a good quota uh, attainment for the team would be north of 60%. You, you wouldn't be overly disappointed with that. You prefer higher, but fine. But now this year, it's below 40%. And I've heard people talking about 30% quota attainment. 
And these are large tech organizations where two in eight, one in eight of the team are hitting quota. Yeah, that's not great. <laughs> no, and it's a, it, I think it's a function of two things. One, it's inflated expectations and, you know, trying to cover their ass relative to these, you know, investors who are now requiring them to try and come in and profitable. The other is that breakdown in the entire demand gen outbound model that we, you know, started off with. So uh, how do we reimagine is, that then? Well, if we had a blank sheet of paper, what would we do differently with outbound and demand gen? Yeah, well, I think at the heart of it, outbound needs to be a function of demand gen as opposed to uh, you know its own silo or as a function of sales. So I think the vast majority of organizations for the last 10 plus years have looked at it as we're going to go and hire some you know people that are you know just starting their careers, you know, may or may not have ever had any sales experience at all. Hell, a lot of them, it's their very first job straight out of college. We're going to maybe give them some training. I would say, you know, maybe just barely the majority, if even that, even get yeah, it. It's always put on training. Right, right. I mean, it's exactly, or it's, you know, maybe, hey, we're going to do, you know, we're going to have you watch some videos on some sales coaching or something like that. But we're going to put, you know, butts in seats and we're going to give you, we're going to equip you with some tech. It's going to allow you to do stuff at really, really huge scale, whether you know what you're doing or not. And then we're going to feed you a whole bunch of, you know, records, contacts, accounts, whatever, and have you just start going through them and do it at, at as high of scale as possible, sending emails, reaching out on LinkedIn, calling, whatever. And we're going to operate under that model saying, if we, if we put enough you know, volume in your hands, that it's going to generate, you know, something significant on the other side of it. And because all of that stuff has broken down, it means that, you know, these organizations are not going to be able to hit quota and that trickles down. So it's not just, you know, the outbound BDR, SDR teams to the degree that those are responsible for setting up a significant amount of meetings and contributing pipeline for the account executives. The account executives are now in a pretty deep hole. They've got to go dig themselves out of the primary tool they have or, you know, mechanism they have to dig themselves out of is the same outbound motions that are broken for the SDRs and BDRs. And so that's what's broken. What you have to do in reimagining that is come up with a strategy that allows them to be leveraged within a broader demand gen motion. And that includes and has to lean on uh, really heavily focusing on value add from a content standpoint uh, in driving visibility and awareness to the, uh, to the product and to the company. But at the end of the day, actually demonstrating value, providing value to those prospects that they're reaching out to. Okay, so the middle management layer managing that particular function is especially immature, typically, isn't it? Now, if a CFO is looking for a way to create the biggest bang for the least amount of buck, does it not make the most sense to teach that middle management layer how to actually be managers and coach, recruit the best people on board properly, train, do ride-alongs, plan, strategize, cooperate with other departments, that sort of stuff, instead of just beating them with reports? That's definitely better than just beating them with reports, but that's a pretty low bar. 
I think even more than that, like this has to go up to leadership and and have buy-in and direction from them because it is a significant restructuring of departments and roles relative to how most organizations are running this. And it's not even just, you know, hey, we're going to move, you know, outbound, you know, SDR, BDR teams under marketing or demand gen. Most marketing demand gen, you know, departments and leaders don't understand themselves how in the hell they would leverage an outbound BDR team or what the hell to do with them. And so it's it takes a lot of sort of reimagining and restructuring this, you know, from the top down to get there. Okay. Um, I'm going to challenge you slightly for the simple reason that my experience is that the middle management layer can be a catalyst for driving all that other change. If you don't teach them to do that, they're a bottleneck because they spend their time on supervisory activity, on micromanagement, uh, on (laughs) forcing people. I'll give you a classic example. A really good sales guy that I'm working with coaching, he's been, uh, his probation's been extended, despite the fact he's one of only two in the team of uh, seven or eight uh, who's hit quota. And he's one of only three in the entire division that's hit quota. But they extended his probation because he doesn't do enough demos. (laughs) Now, that kind of rigid stupidity is a function of a manager who doesn't really understand their role. And what I've seen time and time again is that when you release them from being supervisors and you turn them into coaches who coach on the job in the moment at the point of need, then the ideas and solutions come from their people. Because I think as we go into uh, the deepest recession in history, the management layer are going to be taking the brunt of this. And they're already stressed. I mean, we're talking 30 plus percent. Uh, suffering from some form of stress-related mental illness uh, in sales. So it's only going to get worse. You know, our, uh, our own people are probably going to have to take second or third jobs. And if they aren't, our customers probably will have people on their teams who will have to take second or third jobs. That's a really big different shift in the market. And our salespeople need to be aware of this. They need to be sensitive to the fact that and you can't continue to just beat people over the head because you want to hit your quota oh yeah i mean i i am not disagreeing with you at all in fact violently agreeing with you right Uh, i just don't believe that middle management is going to be sufficient to get the change that's needed i think it's an all of the above and you need to drive alignment across you know from from top to middle to you know bottom and and vice versa. I'm, um, I'm with you. Um, that my, my point being, though, that uh, middle management are responsible for executing the how and working out the how of leadership's what. And if you try and put it to managers who are already overstressed and overworked and burning out, they're not going to think well. But if you spread the load and they learn how to delegate, they learn how to trust their people, they learn how to have them make decisions, then it frees frees the managers up to do the better, higher value stuff. But the people come up with the ideas. The people who speak to customers, for instance, might be the ones that you want feeding back into your product team. Not an engineer or not a marketeer who's never spoken to a customer in their life. I mean, what's that all about? 
I don't disagree at all. But at the same time, if the what coming from above yeah. is still asking them to figure out the how of the wrong thing, it's going to be a I problem. Surrender. You're absolutely 100% right. Um, <laughs> but what, 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 I'm, uh, what I'd love people to recognize is the catalytic effect of just getting your managers out of the way, because that's the best thing about it. Because the minute you stop them being a bottleneck, then it frees up everything else. So training, uh, interestingly enough, gets a 36 times higher return on investment when managers coach to reinforce the training for one hour per rep per week for the month following. 36 times higher. There's a reason why when I interview, I tell my interviewees explicitly, if you find that I am micromanaging you, then we've got a serious problem and we're not going to be working together for very long. And I extend that to when I interview for managers that I'm hiring is if you are micromanaging, then you're probably not going to be in that role for very long. <laughs> uh, the goal should not be, hey, we've got to go and spoon feed this shit to people and we've got to stay on top of them. And if we don't monitor every single thing that they do and are they hitting 100 dials a day and whatever, that you know this is going to fall apart. Like you have to, have to enable your team members to be able to be have initiative to learn from to take risks and be able to lead at what they do i mean if i hire somebody it's not for i mean let's put it this way the last thing i have time to do at the point that i'm hiring somebody is to then go burn my day and my bandwidth my time micromanaging them yeah. i need to hire somebody that is going to be expert and a leader in whatever piece of the puzzle they're responsible for and they may not be there from day one, but within a very relatively short period of time, I need to have, be able to trust and have confidence that they can do what they're doing better than I could micromanage them to do. This then ties neatly back into the ethics discussion as well, because if you're hiring to keep your balance sheet looking attractive to the shareholders at the expense of the human beings that you're hiring, it also then raises a question, how can one turn ethical recruitment into a distinct competitive advantage and source of profit? I mean, it's not terribly hard to do that. You just have to be able to have a comprehensive enough uh, you know, viewpoint of what's going on in order to recognize the advantages that you have. I mean, it was like what you talked about with training. You know, it, a 30, you know, 30x ROI and what you're doing there, and yet most organizations underinvest in it. I mean, it's not rocket science. You know, it's not super hard to go figure out. Okay, so either, I mean, the, the inference from that is either leadership is greedy, stupid, willfully ignorant, or something else. What, what, what is it that causes otherwise relatively bright individuals to intentionally work against their expressed intent. Because if they intended to deliver shareholder value, they would worry about engaging their staff and having customers who come back and stay for decades. So at, at the heart of it, and this is where I'm going to give a little bit, don't overestimate how much I'm trying to give here, but a little bit of you know understanding to the people, the leaders that are making these decisions. Yeah, it's not rocket science, but it doesn't mean it's easy. Having a comprehensive 
in-depth understanding of what's going on isn't super easy to do. It's a complicated framework. It requires an under operating understanding of a lot of moving pieces and how they interact with each other and how they engage with each other. So it is not a very simple mindset or you know, framework to try and interpret what's going on and make decisions against. For the most part, it's going to require a very, very open mind and a willingness to do a lot of testing and looking at the data and figuring out what the data is telling you and being comfortable with and willing to accept when the data tells you something that's counterintuitive or goes against what you've been taught or what you thought you knew or whatever. Those are things that most of us don't take too naturally. It's not human nature to operate that way a lot of times. And at the end of the day, like doing things that require a lot of thought and understanding and stuff like that are hard. And it's not just hard from like a, you know, am I smart enough to do this? Whatever. Like it straight up is physiologically taxing. You know, they've done studies where they, you know, had people try and work on, you know, really difficult mental tasks. And they looked at what happened with their glucose levels. And it's the equivalent of a long distance runner having to then kick into sprint mode. Like it literally depletes your body of your glucose levels. And one of the best ways to counteract that is give somebody sugar as they're starting to try and go and do this. And I mean, they've looked at all kinds of things like the verdicts that judges pass down on cases and stuff like that relative yeah, to how months. long ago, how yeah. long ago it had been since their last meal. And their decision making got worse the further away from that last meal they got. So, like, yeah, this stuff is not easy. And it, it takes you, you really don't want to be non white and um, having your judgment before lunch. It's a really bad place to be because I, I think exactly. the sentences were something like 40% higher. I mean, just terrifying. Okay. So, this then makes me think. Because what you've effectively described uh, very uh, wonderfully are wicked problems. Wicked problems are interdependent. They are entwined. So if you fix, if you mess with one bit, then it affects other parts of the system. And if you've got a system, an imperfect system, that's found an unhappy equilibrium, but it's found an equilibrium, and you tinker, it causes things to go out of kilter. So with these kind of complex problems, the stakeholders differ. Uh, the rules change as you go. And whatever outcome you eventually come up with, it's going to be imperfect. And there's always something that can be better. Now, because there are all these different stakeholders, it's very, very complicated. And so what I've seen time and time again is the CMO buys another piece of technology. The VP of sales hires a few more SDRs, or they change their CRM, or they bring in some training and the results don't improve. So what has to change in terms of first principle thinking and design thinking so that they start in the right place? No, I think you're absolutely correct in that question. And so, you know, I think adding to the laziness side of it, the other thing that, you know, most people, and I mean, hell, I've been guilty of this, yeah, what they really, really, really want to find with it, you know, relative to business, I think in particular, but you know, kind of across the board, are things that have a straight line 
as far as what's causality between things. So, hey, I do this, and there's a straight line from that action to this result. And that's what we all really want, because that's really easy to understand. Okay, if I go- Rory Sutherland calls it the lazy Y. Right, right. And so that's what everybody's really in search of. Of course, in these really complex systems, nothing works that way. And that's reason why testing and operating off of data and stuff like that is so essential because it's the only way you can really get to all of those complex interactions that are going on there is by, hey, I pulled this lever, it has this result. Is that result in line with what I wanted? Is it not? And then start working backwards there with hypotheses as to what caused it to go that direction versus another. And that's how you ultimately start uncovering some of these interactions that you may have not even been aware of. But back to your question about first principles, I think that really cuts to the heart of how do you solve for these things where it's not clear what that causal relationship is. And that's the reason why operating from a, you know, from a list of primary principles within an organization that are not just profit is so key and so essential. So you can ask these questions as you're making a decision. Does this align with our principles, with our values that we have? And then from there, you can start working around, okay, what did I do? What are the results around that? But done from a starting point of trying to align with those values or principles that you have as an organization. And this can go all the way. So, you know, that's a way for leadership within an organization to work. That's something that's being tested and tried in some investment models where they're trying to focus on, you know, stakeholder metrics as opposed to just, you know, you know, key profitability measures, trying to encourage that type of thinking. It's the same thing that goes into, you know, not nudge models of decision making. And so, yeah, if you've uh, not read the book Nudge, I strongly recommend go out and grab it. Uh, or if you even want to go deeper into it, you can uh, go pick up uh, Daniel Kahneman's Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, which is the foundational you know, psychological research that goes into that. But the whole concept there is nobody can make a decision within a vacuum. Uh, any decision, any choice anybody makes is influenced by the architecture in which that decision had to be made. And so, you know, as a decision architect, whether that is an investor, whether that is a a government official trying to figure out how certain regulations or laws are going to be put into effect, whatever, you know, what you should try and do is what they refer to as, crap, I'm spacing on the term, but basically maximize freedom of choice while recognizing that you are going to influence them. And so, you know, to the degree that you have to have some influence in there, do it in as, you know, try and nudge them in the direction of what you believe is going to be in their best good. I'd love to get your definition of selling. (laughs) What is selling? What sales? That is a loaded question. Let me, uh, I don't have anything off the top of my head, so let's go off the cuff. Uh, Ideally, selling is providing a solution to a need that, you know, a prospect has. And so as such, selling should be largely a educational process and a problem-solving process. That's the ideal of what selling should be. It's not necessarily what selling is for the most, the majority of, you know, organizations or sales. Okay. So 
I would define selling as the facilitation of buying. It's the simplest definition. And our job is to turn up and make sure that they feel safer with us next to them on that journey than without us. Now, what's interesting about this, and you've raised the, the critical point, that I don't think that we all share the same definition of selling. And the net result of that is that there is a large swathe of the uh, the sales population that thinks selling is about manipulation, that thinks selling is about uh, cool tricks and tactics, about gaming the system. What they forget in doing that is in trading effectiveness and relationship for efficiency, they've forgotten that the real media is the human being. It's not the channel that you get them to uh, get to them through. And people have not changed in the last quarter of a million years, by and large. Uh, the environment <laughs> around us, we've you know, made that change. But the way our brains work is largely the same. And so another book I would urge people to read is uh, Persuasion by Robert Cialdini. If you haven't, it's kind of a foundational text in this space. Now, the one thing I would say is we need to get away from this manipulative, controlling type of selling and management. So as as an ethicist, trying not to get my lift involved, as an ethicist, what would you say we need to do if we were reworking and rewriting recruitment from the ground up? What would you suggest needs to be done differently? Another loaded one. Uh, first off, let's not put it all on salespeople and let you know other you know roles within the organization off the hook when it comes to manipulation and stuff like that. In fact, I would say there's a strong argument to be made that people on the marketing demand gen side are even more guilty of it than salespeople. I think there's a lot well, to be across the entire RevOps. Anywhere that there is any manipulation yeah. or selfish selling creates tension and friction and fires off their amygdala. So that can't be a good thing. So uh, let's take selling out of it. Anything that touches the customer that is manipulative. Yes, yes. (laughs) (laughs) And then, yeah, on the recruiting side of things, to be honest, and this is one that I'm, uh, you know, another one I'm shocked that I I encounter as much as I do. And I think it's that same sort of, you know, myopic, easy thinking uh, side of things pretty much across the board. My worst hires have been people that you know were educated in or had direct experience in the role that I was hiring them for. My best hires pretty much across the board were people that were go-getters, were smart, and had a broad you know background. Uh, and you know if it's somebody coming straight out of college, more often than not, that was somebody that studied at a liberal arts you know, uh, uh, education. And so oftentimes I hire them. By that, you mean a generalist? Yes. I will take somebody that's smart, intellectually curious, and a hustler over somebody that has many years' experience in a specific role any day of the week. And it's because those are people that I can very quickly train to be world-class in what they do. And oftentimes, more often than not, they're going to teach me things about it. Versus somebody that's coming in with that level of experience, they're typically going to come in expecting to do the same thing they've done previously. And as we have really clearly showed here, odds are that they were doing it at an organization that was not doing that very well. (laughs) Well, I, I think there is a real pattern of generals fighting the last war. And as a result of that, 
we end up doing is preparing for stuff that used to work in their last place. And so um, what's really fascinating is the speed of turnover of senior leadership. So CROs, VPs of sales, CMOs, they're churning at an alarming rate because I think what's also happening is they very quickly recognize that what the job they were brought in for is not the job that the founders or investors really wanted. CROs in particular, I'm seeing this, where they're brought in, and it's meant to be a big strategic role that aligns the whole thing. And what they really want is a senior salesperson with a a good black book. So a lot of the recruitment, I think, needs to come back to first principles and work out in three years' time, I've got Jason in this role. Uh, How do I know he's been successful so that we continue to keep him? And what's next for him? So then work backwards from there. And one of the most interesting questions I'm finding that's very useful and instructive is uh, related to the kind of challenges I know they're going to face. So it doesn't have to be in the same industry, some the same product or anything else like that. What I'm looking for are examples of repeated patterns of them facing a challenge that I know they're going to face because they'll have thought about it. They'll have gone through the questioning process. And I don't even care if they've been successful, to be honest. I want to have them to have lived that misery before because the scar tissue is the best bit. Yeah, I mean, it's fascinating to me. And I mean, I've gone through this personally. And again, it goes back to these same, same culprits and you know, uh, factors playing into it. For me, as somebody doing hiring, if I was trying to hire somebody in a, you know, a VP, C-suite you know, type role, uh, you know, the leadership type roles that you just rattled off, for me, one of the most beneficial you know, piece of experience, because of course, at that point, you're like, you really don't want to go hire somebody straight out of college. Having some level of experience is important, and I think primarily around just the management of people side of things more than, than anything else. But you know, in the tech space, what I would look for above and beyond is somebody that was at a very early stage startup, ideally a bootstrap startup. And manage to, you know, whether that startup wound up being wildly successful or not, you know, if they were even moderately successful, it's like, okay, hey, you came in, you had, you know, little in the way of experience, you had almost zero support from a financial, you know, resources standpoint, training standpoint, whatever, and you figured shit out. It's like, oh, holy shit. All right, that's something I want to hire for. The number of organizations, especially venture backed organizations, that go out and go try and find somebody at another, you know, very heavily venture-backed organization or even a publicly traded organization in the space and bring them into a role where, hey, we're trying to scale up from, you know, five, 10 million in revenue to whatever they're trying to get to and thinking that's going to be your problem solver. I mean, that's asinine. What I'm starting to get a real sense of is that, the channels that people have been using historically aren't working anywhere near as well. And delivery rates on emails have been uh, absolutely tanked. People are probably getting themselves and everyone else on their domain blacklisted. So they're thinking that they're doing stuff and they're wondering why uh, response rates are tanking. Cold calling, you're starting to, you know, you're looking at in some sectors, 46 dials to get through to one person. That's three hours of manual dialing. And people in leadership are not asking the obvious question, is there a better way? And 
they're not looking at things like community. They're not looking at things like ecosystems. They're not looking at uh, referral partnerships or cooperating with actual competitors to uh, do stuff like dead lead swaps. Then they, they would see all this kind of change as being anathema. You know, it's not the way we've done it around here. And if you do happen to be stuck in a place like that, I mean, gnaw your own arm off to get the hell out um, and go and find a manager who will spend time letting you make mistakes, uh, encouraging you to screw up and take risks and yep. will coach you and want you to uh, succeed. What you described are the circumstances that have led to my exit at every organization that I have left. Where I came in and killed it and kicked ass and took names was where those organizations were willing to let me go and do those things that I do well. And they got out of my way. And, you know, all of this under the understanding and caveat that I never once expect anybody to get out of my way without me showing them the results and saying, hey, I have demonstrated to you time and time again reliably that I can deliver results that are you know, above and beyond what we had projected, expected, anything like that. Inevitably, at every organization I've worked at, in spite of delivering those results and showing them that regularly, you know, quarter after quarter, I wind up in a scenario where, for whatever reason, they decide that, hey, that's not a direction we want to go. That's not freedom we want to allow. We're going to make these other decisions. And at that point, it's just, it, you know, anytime I get to a place where I'm spending more time and bandwidth and energy fighting battles to get alignment and people out of my way than I am on executing, it's absolutely right. Like, gnaw my arm off, do whatever the hell I need to do, but get the fuck out. Absolutely. Okay, so tell me this. Uh, clearly, you joined a different company to the one it became. Um, at what point did Not Invented here um, and you know, th- where they started? Uh, Safi Bakal wrote a fantastic book called Loon Shots, where he describes how entrepreneurial enterprises die on their ass uh, when uh, there comes a point where middle management and senior management uh, feel it's safer to blow up good ideas um, rather than encourage them. And at what point in the business's evolution and scaling up did that shift happen? At the end of the day, I think it primarily comes down to decision-making by ego. There's been two primary uh, triggers that have caused this and have done it consistently in my experience and career. One is technical founders struggling to scale beyond a point. Technical founders typically can get it to somewhere between like 5 and 10 million ARR. And then at that point, things start to break down. And then as soon as things start to break down, uh, they, well, I mean, it's it's really funny. So you've got two converging uh, trends that happen. Their ability to scale starts to break down at the exact same point that their level of success starts feeding into ego. And that is a recipe for disaster. Oh, I remember the last few years I've been coaching the VP of sales for a company. And it was exactly as you described, technical founder got to 10 million uh, and everything that we were trying to do that would have driven sales, he managed to stymie because he wanted to focus on developing the product. And they ended up having to get um, acquired. And all the work that they'd done, basically all they did was they just bought the customer base. And everything's just died on its ass. He got a bit of money, but everybody else 
basically lost out. Heartbreaking. Story of my first B2B SaaS company. I was one of like a half dozen employees that actually got any value for our stock options. This is another really, really important uh, warning uh, from history for people. Most people who have equity in startups and scale-ups make no money and certainly never see anything back. And when you do get to vest your options, just be careful that because of the capital gain, you're not going to end up oh, yeah. tax and being out of pocket um, because Why? it cripple you. I took a uh, line of credit against my uh, house in order to pay those taxes with no idea of if or when that company would ever exit to anything. So, I mean, it was a $60,000 tax bill as a gamble against a huge unknown. And, you know, it played out okay for me. But as far as like, you know, risk decision-making, it was probably a really terrible, terrible choice. Well, in this market with the correction that's coming, you would not have wanted to be making that decision. <laughs> no, no, I mean, it was, you know, it was arguably one of the dumber financial decisions I've ever made. Thank God it worked out okay. But yeah, well, I think you've answered my next question, which is tell me about a victory you wouldn't want to repeat. <laughs> that, that absolutely would be one from start to finish. I mean, I, I, I came in as the first employee at that company and helped grow it from 20,000 MRR to over a million. All of this bootstrapped, yeah, I think we have raised you know, maybe three quarters of a million dollars, almost all of that strategic investment because we needed it. And I mean, it was pretty remarkable what we had managed to do. And then, you know, wheels came off the bus. I wouldn't shut up about, you know, all the bad decisions that were being made. Uh, ultimately, that led to, you know, us needing to part ways. Uh, you know, growth stalled. Um, so, I mean, like our churn, we net new, uh, you know, customers and revenue was barely keeping up with churn. Fast forward a year after I uh, left and we exited to a private equity firm our annual revenue amount. So we had a, a multiple of zero or a multiple of one. Um, so it was in line with revenue that we exited at that. Uh, wow. Kicker to that was we had an opportunity to exit nearly three years earlier for the same amount of money. Ego got in the way and said, uh, you know, uh, I think conversation went basically like, our ceiling for not having to go to the board is X. Reply from the founder was, well, your ceiling is my floor. I don't know if we've got room to negotiate. Oh, well, the beauty of hindsight and all that. What was your best done mistake? Oh, man, there's a lot of those as well. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm trying to think of a particularly good one. I guess we'll go with recent history. Best dumb mistake that I made was a late realization with uh, you know one of my clients that this worked better as a partnership than a traditional client uh, agency relationship. In that you know I took less revenue from the contract than I would have agreed to with anybody else because I recognized that you know uh, those that additional value from a strategic standpoint and. It was a big mistake in that, you know, it was a conversation we danced around for many months trying to figure out a way to do it. And, you know, we were stuck in a myopic viewpoint of how do we make this work financially? And then as soon as I sort of, you know, branched out of that and was like, I'm thinking about this entirely in the wrong way. 
And within the you know framework or you know point of view that I was coming into it, you know, it, it absolutely was the wrong decision. Um, you know, with a broader understanding of it and you know, coming to the viewpoint I got to, it was one of the wisest decisions I probably made, you know, in my business. And you know, it was just one of those of like you gotta. Yeah, I, I say this often. It's not about thinking through problems. It's about thinking around problems. When you can do that, you know, more often than not, you can get to solutions. And it sort of goes back to that whole framework discussion we were having around, you know, lazy decision making. Like, you need to be put into a framework where you're having to make decisions around those broader interests, priorities, stuff like that. So let, let's finish on this note because I think it's really important. I, I think one of the things that we really have to start doing is teaching salespeople and marketers and CS people to think, uh, to really ask questions and to have um, real depth of inquiry. Because, first of all, their job must be incredibly boring, just rattling off the same shitty pitch to get three minutes a day of human contact. That doesn't strike me as a good use of anybody's life. So what we should be teaching them to do is really understand how to get to the root cause of someone else's motivation, understand their problem, help them diagnose the root cause of their problem. And none of that seems to be happening because of this rush to try and get uh, you know, hit quota. And that emphasis on the financial side means that the relationship suffers and you end up with nobody really benefiting, apart from maybe the people at the top. No, and I think it's a great way to really demonstrate the challenges around this and how difficult some of this can be, but also the benefits of taking the time to do this complex, you know, thinking through and, you know, designing of these motions and stuff like that. So, you know, let's take a look at all of the data that's out there now about your potential buyers. One of the things I've been doing for a lot of my career, and I just got done building two of the most, you know, sophisticated ones that I've ever built, but even beyond that, that I've seen at any organizations are customer data platforms. A CDP, for most organizations, is I'm going to take in some of my data my marketing automation system, my cell sequencing tool, my CRM, and I'm going to use that to find like the most likely to buy people. And then I'm going to, you know, prioritize that for extra touches and extra, you know, effort by the salespeople. Instead, what I've been able to build out more often than not is like really advanced, uh, you know, intense signals from all over the place to be able to, you know, help you know, single out and pull to the forefront, not only those people that are most likely to engage or buy, but also indicate where they are in their journey, what their needs and hot buttons are, what they're trying to solve for as a problem. And so from there, you can start doing really targeted outreach relative to what they're needing, what they're looking for, where they are in that process. And that goes from a marketing demand gen standpoint, it goes from a sales standpoint, all of that. And so instead of having a rep just calling on and sending you emails and stuff like that, uh, you know, that are just templated and, hey, here's our product, here's our solution, whatever. Instead, you can equip them and say, hey, this person is in dire need of a solution to this specific problem. Instead of like turning them loose and just having them call on them or even call on them with specific messaging of like, hey, this is how feature X, Y, and Z can solve your problem. Instead, they can surface and say, 
hey, you might be interested in this webinar that we recorded a month ago with a you know customer yeah. that solved exactly your problem. Or you may be interested in this case study or this white paper in which we discussed this. Or you, know, you may be interested in learning more about all these other organizations that are struggling with something similar because you seem to just be at the very beginning stages of realizing you even have a problem. Like, holy shit, what a different conversation that is and how much value you're providing at that stage. And then allowing them to come back to you and say, okay, yeah, you really get it. You understand where I'm at and what I need. Tell me more. That requires a lot more sophistication and understanding of what's going on um, and being able to care and build out those functions relative to it. it it's really interesting. I, I'm launching my hiring winners program in October, and it's all about building the job hiring template, if you like, out from the job to be done. And working out what good and bad looks like so that you, when you're designing the, uh, the candidate you intend to hire, you're actually hiring for the job that they're going to do, not some fiction that you cut and paste from the last seven people that you've hired and fired from that shitty job description and bad interview process. The interview process as well is in desperate. I mean, th 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 there are so many things. You know, we're talking about the intertwining. There's investment. There's metrics, uh, there's compensation, there's hiring and recruitment, there's onboarding, there's training, there's coaching or lack thereof, there's systems and processes, there's management, there's leadership. And that's just the starting point. If you really want to solve these problems, you need to look at all of those areas in parallel and see what the data is telling you so you can discern where you're going to invest your time and effort. Then you have to make a decision on where you're going to place your bets. And the really important thing here is sacrifice this non-essential. You can't do everything. Pick the three to five that you're going to place your bet on and then make damn sure that within six months you've exceeded the milestone so the organization doesn't lose faith. One of the really funny things, and you're talking about data here in this, at this point in my career, so I'm basically 15 years in, I have yet to have anybody give me any training on this. I have yet to have anybody that I've worked with or known in my professional career that's been given training around this. Namely, how do you effectively interview to hire? Because guess what the data will tell you? If you don't have really good training in how to do that, you're about as good as a coin flip, if not worse. Uh, no, you're worse. It's um, uh, competency-based interviewing is around 14% affected. Yeah. Two out of five senior executive hires fail within 12 months of being hired. That's 40% yep. of the CEO's vision not being executed. Duh. Jason, this has been really fascinating. Um, tell me this. Um, how can people get hold of you? Uh, easiest way, uh, look for me on LinkedIn, Jason Hubbard, uh, Demand Magic, or visit demandmagic.ai, and you can fill out a form there, and it will get routed to me or a team member, and they can uh, uh, point me in the right direction. Excellent. Jason Hubbard, thank you. Thank you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this useful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, and tag somebody who'd benefit from it. Uh, God knows there must be enough people out there who are doing all the things wrong that we've talked about.
Now, in the meantime, if you want to get a hold of me, Marcus at last-last.com. And I'm launching on the 4th of October, 2022, the Hiring Winners Bootcamp. So it's really about hiring best fit candidates the first time. You know, what's it cost you to make bad hires? How can you design candidates that are best fit and will work out, get better over time and stay for a long time? Because that's what everybody wants to hire. No one wants to fill a vacancy. How do you interview effectively so you get to the truth and you don't get deceived by the salesman's puff? How do you stack the deck in your favor so that you're building your bench of A players so you always have choice and you don't have to hire the only person available at the time who's willing to take your job? And then how do you onboard people? And then we'll be wrapping all of this up to make sure there are no no loose ends. So if you're interested in that, drop me a line. There is a link in the blurb. And in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.